Amelia Boone, welcome to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So there, there's a lot that we can and will talk about today, but I want to start with breakfast, uh, since it's the most <laughs> important meal of the day. Um, yes. It's known that you have a thing or two for Pop-Tarts. You've yes. posted about them on social media. I, I noticed on your website, you've included them in your bio. Um, so where did this, where did this love affair with um, this toaster pastry start? We have, we have a long and sordid history together. No, uh, it actually started. So back when I, my first introduction to really any type of endurance racing, um, were kind of multi-day races, uh, this thing that we call the death race, uh, with Joe DeSena, who's the founder of Spartan race. And it, we would spend multiple days in the woods out, um, in Vermont and pop charts were just the thing that, I think a bunch of us ate um, at the time to kind of fuel ourselves. I, they were easy. They were portable. Um, and so I carried that over when I um, was running the Spartan Race World Championships in 2013. I, we were like 75% in the race. And I was just, I was crushing the other women. I think I was about 45 minutes ahead. Um, and at one point I was going over this obstacle and the race director goes, Amelia, what you have for breakfast this morning? And I yelled out pop parts and, uh, which is true. I did, but, and that's kind of where it stuck. And so ever since that, it's been this, it's a superstition. I'm 110% and also love, um, that I have pop tarts before every race. Do you stick with a particular flavor or do you like to switch it up? You know, I have my, my go-to has generally been cinnamon roll, but I will mix it up mainly because I don't want to, as <laughs> sounds weird, <laughs> that I don't want to be too fixated on the flavor. Then, you know, if I, if I don't have a certain flavor that day, then certain things are going to go wrong. Um, and I know that sounds nuts coming from a woman who's talking about eating Pop-Tarts before races, but, um, I am open. I'm open. I try, I try all the new ones that are out there. Um, but. Yeah. <laughs> Still haven't been able to land that sponsorship deal yet, though. No, you know, they did send me this letter um, and then sent me like eight boxes of Pop-Tarts, which is nice. But I, I kept being like, if you guys want to keep working together, I swear to God, like, I'll, I'll be a perfect person. I swear that everyone in endurance racing would love Pop-Tarts. And yeah, no response. So I think their target demographic is more <laughs> mother, mothers of five-year-olds. Yeah, probably not going to make too much bigger of a splash in the endurance world, which is too bad because <laughs> Pop-Tarts are great. Um, let's rewind a little bit just to yeah. your start in endurance sports, obstacle racing. Uh, you're very accomplished in obstacle racing. You've won multiple mm -hmm. world championships. How did you get into the sport? Yeah, I think I got into it just the same way that so many people do. And it was just signing up for a race with friends. And I remember when Tough Mudder was first announced um, back in like 2010, I was a first year associate at a very large law firm in Chicago. And a coworker of mine came by and said, Hey, there's this crazy race. We should do it. And I was like, yes, absolutely. So I spent the, that was like in January and the race was in July. And I spent the next six months like training for it. Um, I, I didn't, you know, I was, I was a, multi-sport athlete when I was growing up, played soccer, softball, but it was all team sports. Never mm -hmm. real, nothing really. I ran to chase a ball, that kind of thing. Um, so I finally, at this point, you know, went to college, went to law school, didn't play sports and then decided to start training for something there. Um, and six months I was like, you can do one pull up Amelia. I never got around to it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, ran that first race, failed miserably on everything. And then was like, but I love it. I absolutely loved it. So I signed up for the next one and then signed up or then the next one happened to be this 24 hour world's toughest mutter. And no, no idea, no reason would think that I could actually do that. I didn't even like staying awake for 24 <laughs> hours, let alone running for 24 hours. Uh, but something possessed me at the time to do it. And I did. And it just snowballed from there. And is that when the competitive spark kind of lit or were you into racing just from that first event that you had done prior to the 24 hour? Yeah, I, I think it was, I tried to keep this competitive spark at bay actually for as long as possible. 
I, I think that was one of the reasons when I initially signed up for Tough Mudder, I, I liked the fact that you weren't timed. There were no timing chips. And it wasn't a race. It was it was the challenge, as they called it. I actually shied away from Spartan Race at first because their motto was you are time ranked and judged and that kind of thing. And I shied away from running road races for the same reason, because I knew that there was could be an ugly streak in me Mm -hmm. if I let the competitiveness come out. Um, so I tried to keep the fun in it, um, and, and, you know, and doing that. And I think that doing the really long, silly, stupid events sometimes, as I like to call them, can help keep the fun in it. Um, so it wasn't until doing, you know, a year or two of the, of that, of the long stuff, um, then, then I started to jump down into like the shorter Spartan races. And then there was like a competitive circuit and started, Winning and doing really well at those. Um, and I think that's when I kind of embraced embraced the athlete in me. Yeah. And were you surprised at all by some of the su- success that you were having at the time? I was, to be completely honest, because I just, I didn't really think, I'd always been a decent athlete growing up, but I was never, never an all, all-star in anything, really. And, um, and then I also just, I kept waiting. I would always joke. I was like, well, I'm just doing well because there's nobody else in this sport. There's nobody else in this sport. Wait till like other athletes come in. Um, but then I was pleasantly surprised that I, you know, could continue to compete, uh, as, as more and more people came into it. Um, and still to this day, I mean, now you have an obstacle racing, you have people doing it full time as, mm-hmm. as a professional career and actually making you know, semi-decent money doing as well as probably any ultra runner is doing. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Or perhaps even better than most ultra runners are yeah, doing. I would, I would actually say it's, it's the, the, the prize purses are much more lucrative than obstacle racing. I keep wondering why more people aren't jumping over to it uh, just for the prize purses alone. But yeah. When you got into it, so you're in Chicago, you're working for mm-hmm. a big law firm you're having some success at this. You're excited about it. You want to do more. How do you start training for these events? Did you seek out a coach or were you just sort of winging it and experimenting with, I don't know, strength training and running and working on obstacles or how did you manage all of that uh, in the early stages? Yeah. I think one of the things that appealed to me was actually the fact that there was no blueprint for this kind of sport. It was the idea that no one really knew how to train for it. So we all kind of made it up as we went along at the time. And there were no coaches. There was nobody who specialized in it. There were no obstacle gyms at that time. Actually, the thing, so after the first Tough Mudder I ran, I realized I needed upper body strength. Um, and so I marched that the next day into my into the local CrossFit gym and plunked down my $200 plus dollars a month and, uh, and sucked it up and Actually, that was when I, you know, within a few months of starting CrossFit, I, my, the strength of gains were just incredible. Mm-hmm. And so the vast majority of my training for the time that I was there in Chicago was, was CrossFit. And, uh, I didn't run very much. I always, uh, people joke with me because I famously always said, I'm like, I'm not a runner. I'm not a runner. And it's true. I ran maybe like 20 miles a week. Um, also it was living in Chicago was not the most appealing running city to me. I know there's a great lakefront there, but after one or two runs on it, I just got bored. And so it was for me, it was, it was primarily kind of like the high intensity interval and, and CrossFit work, uh, which then, you know, carried over, um, to obstacle racing, but it's, it's incredible now because you can see there are obstacle gyms all over the place, people that coach obstacle racing and, and just that kind of growth. And a lot of blueprints but it's still not this set in stone right. you know like when you have a triathlon like this is this is what you do and these are your bricks and blah 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 people come at it from come at it from all different backgrounds yeah the sport still seems to be in its nascent stages at this point yeah so looking back at all of that what do you think it was about your background athletically or otherwise that allowed you to have success at these types of events yeah, I had always known, um, and the thing that I, that I did really well as a kid, what enabled my success all over kind of success in sports as a kid was the fact that I could keep going when nobody else could. So I was well known that if we had a soccer tournament, we had four games that day 
that by the end of that fourth game, I would still be fresh as a daisy and all the other kids would keep kind of like dying on the side. Um, and I was a pitcher in softball and I forget the time when I had to pitch five softball games in one day because our other pitcher got injured. And I just had, and then we don't really know where it came from, but just kind of an engine. And, um, so I think if I look back on that now, that's probably the one thing that's kind of led to success, um, in, in the longer endurance sports is never quick, mm-hmm. never fast, nothing like that. Um, but it was just that kind of, I'm not going to quit mentality. Okay. Let's hit pause on that <laughs> for a second. We'll come back to kind of obstacle course racing and yeah. the progression of your career and whatnot. Um, but for someone who is not a runner, you dabble in ultra running. <laughs> and as of this conversation, you've got your first ultra race in two years or so. Um, yeah. Coming up here very soon in early February. When mm-hmm. did you start taking an interest in trail and ultra running? Or was it, you know, was it separate from obstacle course racing or did it sort of happen concurrently? It actually, uh, obstacle racing introduced me to trail it was kind of like the gateway drug Mm -hmm. for me i realized that the thing that i liked about obstacle racing was running up and the thing that i liked the most was running up and down the mountains Mm -hmm. i mean i loved the only there they had courses that were like in indoor arenas or on super flat ground i had no interest in it but the courses that were on mountains you know the the ones up in killington vermont and uh, the ones in in Pennsylvania, the ones that were up and down these gnarly ski slopes, I loved and I dominated. I did really well at them. So I got in my head, I'm like, well, what would happen if I just ran a race up and down a mountain where there weren't any obstacles? Because <laughs> to be honest, I'm not the most, I've done well as an obstacle racer, but I excel in the, like the heavy carries, carrying heavy things and beating people up and down a mountain not so much like the ninja warrior type of skills yeah, the technical stuff sure. the technical stuff is much harder for me and it hasn't come naturally so that's where i kind of got in my head that hey there actually actually amelia there's this entire other sport out there that is just running up and down the mountains so why don't you give it a go um but it wasn't really until i moved to california that and I actually had decent access to tra- or fantastic access to trails that right. I really got the bug and um and I absolutely and I you know I've loved it. What was the first ultra race that you entered? Uh, so I did 2015. I entered the Georgia Death Race um, when I was still living in Chicago at this time. And, uh, once again, uh, no business being there. I think I was running like 30 to 40 miles a week on flat ground. Um, and that's and no, a 68 I, mile race, I believe, yeah. for those of you, uh, unaware of the Georgia death race. Yeah. And it, at that time, it was not a, a golden ticket race. And I, mm-hmm. I had no idea even really what Western States was at the time, um, that I ran it, but I had some friends who had run it before and, um, it is surprisingly for a race in Georgia, the amount of elevation gain and loss is incredible. I mean, they've got some mountains there. Um, so I, you know, and, and I did everything wrong. I think I was puking like 20 miles into it. Cause I was eating solid food from the get go. Cause I was thinking like, I'm like, Oh, I eat solid food during world's cup mutter, but you're moving a much slower pace when you're doing obstacles for 24 hours versus when you're just running. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that was the fir- my first go of it um, for sure. <laughs> Were you hooked after that, or did it take a little more time for you to to go back to racing on the trails? No, I definitely it, it took some time, mainly because I was um, preoccupied not preoccupied, but I had a full obstacle racing season, and that I just I was really in the thick of doing all the Spartan races, doing all the NBC, like they were televised on NBC. So doing everything with that and fitting in ultras around that was, is kind of, was kind of difficult. Also the fact that I was living in Chicago, which you just didn't have the access um, that you do out here in California. And when did you move to California? Uh, California was, I moved to California in October, 2015. Okay. It's a little over two years ago. And not even six months after that, you ran Sean O'Brien 100K. 
um, mm-hmm. which you're returning to here in a couple weeks. And you were second um, yes. and qualified for Western States. Talk to me mm-hmm. a little bit about that race. And looking back, do you consider that sort of a breakthrough for you in terms of your trail and ultra running? Yeah, I, I remember... I can't even remember what possessed me to sign up for it. I think I just moved to California. And in my mind, I was thinking that in the off season, it would be great to get in an, in the obstacle racing off season, I could do some ultra running, <laughs> um, you know, because like who needs an off season? Let's just, let's just jump in straight into something else. And, um, and so when I decided I kind of landed on Sean O'Brien and then I read about what a golden ticket race was and I about Western States and I kind of heard of Western States, kind of knew about it, but I was still very, very new to it. And I go, well, that'd be cool. And, you know, why just not give it a go? And it was a fantastic experience. And, and luckily, when I moved out of the Bay Area, Devin Yanko welcomed me in and, you know, with, with open arms, kind of ran with her a bunch. And I was like, oh, my God, she's so fast and she's so good. And I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, and she was a great resource. And um, so running down at Sean O'Brien with her there that year was just amazing. And yeah, I mean, I, once again, I I fell apart during that race at certain points too. Um, but I think I think we always do when races get long. So um, you know, nothing but fond memories. <laughs> um, obstacle course racing and ultra running. We've touched on this a little bit, but how do they how do they complement each other, if at all? Um, and what are the biggest differences that you've noticed in terms of? just the culture, the vibe, and the preparation for both of those sports? There are certain, well, the the funniest thing for me is the first time I ever ran an ultra, I was like, what do I do with my hands? (laughs) You know, because I just, it was like, you know, 50 plus miles of not climbing or crawling or hanging from things. And so I always joked about that. Um, they're very, it, it, in all honesty, there's not, I used to think there was a lot of crossover and there's not much aside from just needing to be like lower body strength, um, strong legs, endurance, resilience. A lot of the trail running, um, technical trail running aspects are crossover very well. What people don't realize about obstacle course racing is that on some of these mountains, we're not on trails, you're bushwhacking. And so having the ability to, the ability to uh, run technically and to technically descend is actually huge um, mm-hmm. because they're you're not they're like cutting these trails a few days before the races and so that's it that's a big thing um, in that I didn't really realize until I came over into the trail world that that obstacle race it had had given me um, I think definitely the huge difference is that most runners have no need for upper body strength um, though I think that I I still firmly believe that. You know, there should be some push-ups and pull-ups involved in all of their training regardless. <laughs> um, but it's, it's definitely, uh, obstacle racing is definitely more uh, power, I think, and power and quickness now. A lot of these races are getting shorter and shorter, and you are redlining for that entire race, whereas mm-hmm. you, you, don't, you don't do that in ultras. And that's probably, for me, as a person who hates redlining, that's why I tend to find my comfort in really long races because I can kind of stay at that sub-maximal pace and just, and work through that. Um, yeah. So from the sounds of our conversation so far, it seems like all of this has gone swimmingly. You get into all <laughs> obstacle course racing, you have some instant success, you get to the top of the sport, win some world championships. Oh, I'll dabble in ultra running, qualify for Western States. But, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't exactly that rosy. I mean, after 2015, after Sean O'Brien in 2016, um, you dealt with some injuries, uh, some pretty major injuries. Let's talk about those, um, a little bit and maybe how, you know, how those may have, may have developed and what you learned from them. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> Sean O'Brien, I, I all of a sudden see myself being like, Oh crap, I'm going to run Western States. I have no idea how to prepare for a hundred miler. Um, and I, I never really kept a training log. I didn't have any type of structured, like any type of regimen. Like I didn't mm-hmm. track my weekly mileage, things like that. I had always said like, Hey, I'm probably running X miles a week or something, but I, I never, never did that. Um, 
And so what ended up happening was I started to bump up my mileage a lot. And then I started to, <laughs> what I also didn't realize is I was also descending a lot, descending a lot, a lot and, um, not knowing much about running and impact and how that, how that can also catch up with you. Um, cause everyone told me it was like, Oh, well, Western States is like a net downhill type of course. Right. So you better get used to just get, get really good at descending. Um, so I ended up actually with a femoral stress fracture, um, and that spiraled into a, pretty nasty big one um about two months before western states and it's funny like i i if i look back on it now i thought it like came out of me nowhere at nowhere like it, it came out of nowhere but i was probably running through things that i shouldn't have been running through um and mainly it's like i have a i've had a pretty bad right hip for a while i've like fully torn labrum and so a lot of the symptoms i just i were just Chalked usual. Up to that. Yeah, I just, I just chalked it up to, I'm like, oh, well, my hip has been wonky for a long time. Like, this is normal. It was all the same things until all of a sudden it wasn't. Um, so yeah. And <laughs> so femoral stress fracture. And, uh, then I sitting there on the sidelines was vowing that, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to get back, going to get back as quickly as possible. And I'm going to, you know, come back and show everyone who's boss and then. And trying to come back too quick from that ended up with a um, three weeks after coming off crutches from the femoral stress fracture ended up with a sacral stress fracture. And uh, so that was kind of that was the most traumatic to be to be honest. <laughs> talk a little bit about a little bit more about that diagnosis and how you handled it initially. Yeah. So. Um, there were a lot of things that went into it. And I think that, you know, looking back on it now, I, I can see how it, how everything happened. I mean, the, with the femoral stress fracture. So I have always held, held muscle or build muscle really easily when I run and when I work out. Mm -hmm. Um, but I also lose it really quickly. And so I ended up after being sidelined on crutches for, you know, four months with the steamer, I lost a lot of muscle mass. And I ended up losing a lot of weight um, as a result. And it wasn't intentional. I didn't. I, and that's the thing is I actually never, I never get on scales. I haven't gotten on scales for a long time. Um, I just, I don't really believe in them. Um, but when I, so when I got off of crutches um, and then for the femur, and then it said like, you know, you're clear. And then I, thought I was slowly starting to run again. And I was kind of just doing this all on my own at the time. Um, and, but really I wasn't, <laughs> um, I, 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 I thought I wasn't slowly starting to run. I like went back to running, but I was like running at a seven minute pace because I was like, look at me, my cardiovascular system is still intact. Um, but so, yeah, I think that my body just, it wasn't, I was, 20 pounds too light and I was trying to run and it within three weeks was like, nope. Interestingly enough too, is that the sacral stress fracture was on my left side, which was the side that I was like hopping on one leg with for, you know, four months on crutches. Mm -hmm. So I also wonder, you know, what that had to do. Cause it's not like I took it easy on crutches. Um, so that's sort of my number one thing as I tell people, like if you're on crutches, like for the love of God, please don't go for like, Strava course records on crutches because it's not, not good. <laughs> Coming off the femoral stress fracture um, and accepting that diagnosis, you're not going to run Western States. What did you do in the interim? Were you cross training like crazy? Were you doing rehab stuff with a PT? What was your treatment from that injury like? Yeah, I tried everything I could in my power to maintain fitness. Um, I was like frenetic at that point. Um, and because I thought in the back of my mind, I had this entire thing mapped out. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to miss Western States and that's sad. But like, if I can just get back for Spartan Race World Championships, I can just salvage the last of the season. I can come back for World's Toughest Mudder to so just stay in shape. Because I've had one stress fracture before a long time, like 2010, when I first started running, it was a tibial stress fracture. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I took six weeks off. It was in a boot and came back. No issues, you know? And so that's, and just biked and swam and I thought it would be fine. Um, so I did the exact same thing. I, I, 
um, you know, I, I rode a station or I rode an assault bike with one leg. I aqua jogged, I swam, I did everything. Um, the skier became my best friend and everyone gave me kudos for being so dedicated and staying in shape while I was injured. Um, but what I, what I didn't realize is that it also, you know, started creating imbalances and it also, mm-hmm. you know, started start, or delayed healing as well. Let's talk about the psychological side of healing when you're injured and unable to do the things that you want to do. What did you learn from the first stress fracture to the second in that regard? Yeah, the the process of acceptance was, was really hard and the process of kind of that feeling of losing your identity. And I think that anybody who's been sidelined from anything for a, a long time you start to really feel that. Um, and I remember just being really angry at first. Like I couldn't, when I saw people running down the road, like I wanted to throw things at them because I was so jealous. Um, <laughs> I was like, if I can't run, no one can run. And uh, I, I, you know, unfollowed everyone on Instagram who was a runner who would post trail pictures just because it was so painful. But I think I slowly started to realize at some point, and I don't, I don't know if it was like during the first one or the second one that, that actually hiding from it made, didn't make anything better. That actually being out there and engaging and still doing what I could as an, as an athlete, as a member of a community is actually way, way more rewarding. Um, and. I think that was very, a very important lesson for me to realize. Um, and I, I, that was actually really solidified when I went up to Western States, um, to cheer on Devin, uh, that, the, that year. Um, and I thought it was going to be awful and hard that I was not there running, but instead it was just such a celebration of community and I loved it. So let's fast forward a little bit to last year, 2017. Um, mm-hmm. you start coming back from second stress fracture getting back into training, what were some of the biggest uh, changes that you made at that time, um, mm-hmm. the second time around versus when you came off the femoral stress fracture um, mm-hmm. months prior? So first of all, I went back to, I went back to my coach, um, David Roche, who he had started coaching me like two weeks prior to my femoral stress fracture. So I know he felt awful, but I was like, dude, you had nothing to do with femur. That thing was broken long before. <laughs> I was like, not related at all. Um, but it was really important. And when we did a return to running program, I was like, oh, yeah, I was doing it totally wrong. Because I mean, and this is, and I'm actually still to this day, I'm going to put them up in the next week was all my return to running logs of like just what it looked like and how slow I had to go after, you know, close to a year off of running. Um, and it's, it was very humbling because basically he was like, we're going to have to treat you as an entirely new runner Mm -hmm. like that. You've never done this before. Um, and, um, so just trusting in that. And then also, so there was that there was, uh, putting weight back on, um, and getting my like hormone levels back to normal, um, things along those lines. And then also really focusing on strength again. Cause I think that when I really got the ultra bug and really just, I mean, I loved running. I just loved it. And all I wanted to do was run, 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 run. And so I started to neglect the things that I wasn't so into anymore, which was <laughs> the weightlifting and the strength training. Um, so really making that a priority again. And you got back to racing a little bit mm-hmm. last year. Um, you did some Spartan races and I believe some other obstacle course races. What was that like to get back on the starting line after pretty much a year of being on the sidelines? It was really scary. Uh, it was really, really scary because I never felt ready. And I realized that um, you're never going to feel ready. And you came, I came in with such high expectations on myself that I should immediately come back and be on top of the podium. And I went through this process in my head, which I actually like the way that I do process things in my head is to write them out and blog them and then like air them for the rest of the world to see. (laughs) Um, Which you do a good job of. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, But it was just like, okay, well, just 
you're going to, it was very humbling. I had to kind of really just check the ego and just be grateful to be out on that, on that start line. And, um, the, the day before the first time I raced again, it was, um, I was just a nervous wreck, but I, I remember just crying when I crossed the finish line now, cause I was just so happy. And it was a big shift for me in, in how I related to ra- racing. And it was actually really kind of necessary, I think. And here we are heading into your first ultra race in quite mm-hmm. some time here in a couple mm-hmm. weeks. Um, I've seen via social media, you just rounded out probably your biggest little block of training in mm-hmm. quite a while. And it's time to start scaling things back. How are you feeling heading back to the start line of an, of an ultra race, knowing that you were injured the last time, <laughs> like shortly after the last one that you did? Yeah, it's, I honestly, I, I'm stoked. It's funny. I've always been one of those people that's like, I try and underplay things or like, I'm just getting nervous. or I don't want people to know that I'm racing because I'm afraid that it creates more expectation or pressure. But what I've kind of realized beyond all this is that, yes, I signed up for Sean O'Brien to hopefully get a golden ticket to go back to Western States. But as I get closer, the more and more I realize, like, if that happens, great. But you know what? Like the day to day and the training and everything that I put into it, it's just, I'm just happy to be out there and racing. And it's been a really long year with a lot of ups and downs in terms of like trying to return to distances. Mm -hmm. And it's been frustrating because I've been wanting to run ultras this entire past year, but it's just like, okay, and I like your, your, your mileage isn't there yet. Your body's not. So I've been playing the really, really long and slow game and perhaps way too conservative. But psychologically, I was so scared to increase my mileage or in every ache and pain, I was like, Oh my God, it's another stress fracture. And just mm-hmm. the thought of being sidelined again. And so for me, this entire training block and, and coming back, Sean Bryan is something where it's like, having trust and faith again in my body and um, just the ability to be out there and and do that. Um, Because at points I was just throwing my hands up in the air and being like, maybe I'm not meant for this, you know? Sure. (laughs) Not even considering finishing place or time, what would be a successful outcome for you at Sean O'Brien? I think really it's just to, it's to, it's to cross the finish line it just, just happy and just at peace. Um, and, and really to, to also just disassociate, I think a lot of the, the demons or things or associations that I've had with, with being broken or with, um, you know, of, of running myself into breaking my femur or that kind of stuff. And, um, I think that just mentally being in a good place is, is very important for me. And, and I've just been, you know, extremely transparent about that. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, which is, which has been great. I yeah. mean, you've shared a lot about, you know, your struggles and the adjustments that you've made to your mindset heading into a race yeah. and maybe some of the things that you've done in training. And I guess along those lines, you are one of the masterminds behind the Twitter handle rest day brags. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about that and how it came to be. I believe it just celebrated its one year anniversary, if yeah, I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Let's yeah, get into that a little bit. Yeah. So Rest of Braggs was I and this is after this is around the, this past last year, this past uh, this time this past year. Whoa, I'm not speaking well. <laughs> but anyway, a year ago. And I had just it was just about to get ready to start running again. So um and I just sent out this tweet about that, you know, nobody celebrates, everyone celebrates their long epic runs, nobody celebrates their epic rest days. And it's so hard, especially when you're an injured athlete to be sidelined and um, to not, to, to not be able to be out there with everyone else. And I think that's initially like what I was trying to do was find some type of community and solace in the fact that, you know, rest is necessary sometimes and to really remove the stigma around it. Um, and, I love, you know, Jonathan Levitt, Carolyn Burkle, Jonathan does the heavy lifting with all of the Instagram and, and Twitter. So I, I give him the credit for it. Um, but really great to see people, more and more people, um, you know, yourself included, like really emphasize the importance of rest. And I know that that's one of the huge things that led, led me down a cycle of injury was just not 
not believing that. I was one of those people. I was like, oh, I don't do rest days. I do active recovery days, yeah. you know? Like, it's just, you just didn't want to be, everyone was like in this beast mode type of, um, type of mindset. And I uh, just wanted to kind of like bring it to light. Like, hey, it's totally okay to rest. And it's more than okay to rest. It's necessary. <laughs> do you think some of that beast mode mentality is driven or fueled by our social media culture? Um, and Absolutely. this, yeah, and this, I don't know, this need to let people know that you just crushed a workout or slammed a long run. Yeah, it, I mean, absolutely. And look, I'm guilty of it as well. Mm-hmm. And the other day when I, you know, I posted about like I just wrapped up 90 miles. I was like, Amelia, do you really need to post like the number of miles? Because I know, like for me, that's like, it's a comparison game. A lot of people, 90 miles is nothing, you know. But to a lot of people, 90 miles is a lot. But I think, you know, it's like, okay, well, sometimes I'm just proud. I'm just proud. And I just want to, mm-hmm. you know, say that. But for the most part, for the most part, I, I tried to consciously try and not do the numbers things because I know how easy it is for people to compare. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why, you know, I'm not on Strava and doing that because like, I personally wouldn't care, don't care that people could follow me all I want. Like I'm open book. You can know what I'm doing. It's just, I know for myself, like if I was to go down the rabbit hole of following other people and then seeing what they're doing. And so I think that's very natural that social media presents this, but I guess Strava keeps people a bit more honest, but definitely social media, like can go the other way too. It is. Yeah. And it's just, it, people, you, it's curated and people present a fictitious, not fictitious, but a selectively curated highlighted yeah Mm -hmm. curated portion of their life and um so i think that it's necessary to kind of step back from that definitely now that's great insight um flipping topics a little bit Mm -hmm. and sort of going back to the time when you were injured and sort of out of competition i mean you're a very recognizable figure certainly in the obstacle course racing world and increasingly in the ultra running world um what was it like dealing with some of the external pressures from I don't know, commenters, listeners, uh, social mm-hmm. media followers. I mean, you're, you're clearly a very driven person and put a lot of pressure on yourself, um, internally. Um, but there's also that external pressure there. People wondering what's going on with you. When are you coming back? Why mm-hmm. aren't you at the top of the podium the first time back on the start line? Um, talk a little bit about that experience and sort of how you dealt with it or maybe how you dealt with it has evolved over the years. Yeah, I think for a long time, I actually just kind of wanted to hide my head in the sand and avoid it. Um, and, you know, everyone is, and, but I also have to, but I've, as I've kind of realized as I've grown is that everybody comes at things through their own lens and mm-hmm. people are actually extremely well-meaning. Um, even when they say things that can be that I've taken the wrong way. Um, and everyone comes to things, you know, with their own hangups and their own lenses. And so, you know, for, ev- and definitely for every person out there that makes an awful comment, there's a hundred other people that make an incredibly supportive one. We just tend to fixate on that one nasty one mm-hmm. <laughs> out there. But what I've actually realized is that I've been way harder on myself than any external pressure out there. You know, I was worried about sponsors. I was worried about, you know, people being upset or this entire, you know, I only raced really four or five times in 2017. And, you know, it didn't have spectacular results by any means of what I was comparatively used to. Um, and like the world didn't end. Um, people still like me. I think I still like myself. And, um, so it's really just like kind of getting through that. And then also realizing that, and it sounds so cliche, but you are so much more than just your race results mm-hmm. and that, and I don't, you know, when I think about people that I know in the, in the obstacle racing world and in the ultra world, like I don't remember where they finished in races, you know, like it doesn't, it doesn't really matter to me. It's more like being involved and engaged in the community. Right. So to anyone listening here who 
doesn't know a ton about you, they'd assume you're just this badass professional athlete who does these extremely long races and puts a lot of time into training, which you do. Um, but that's not your full-time job. You work mm -hmm. full-time still as an attorney um, mm -hmm. for Apple, and we don't have to get into what you do, but I can only assume <laughs> that it's a very demanding gig. How do mm -hmm. you juggle the demands of your professional life with this professional interest, <laughs> um, professional athletic interest that you have yes. and put a lot of, of time into. Yeah. I, I've always said it's not a perfect fit. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, we all have our things. I'm blessed and lucky. I'm, I'm, I'm I don't want to be like, I'm blessed and lucky <laughs> in that I don't have kids or like a husband to take care of. No, um, <laughs> no, I'm joking, but I'm we all have our demands. And mm -hmm. so I have a full-time career, but I also, you know, only really have myself to worry about. And so everyone else, you know, I look at like mothers and people raising kids and I'm like, man, I have no idea how you do all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, so for me, it's, I, I always, I train really early in the mornings because I know that's the time where I can fit it in where nobody's really looking for me unless I'm dealing with people from, um, Europe or Asia. <laughs> um, but, uh, and I just, find that I'm more productive when I have multiple balls in the air. So if I know that, look, like, Amelia, you need to turn off your computer by 8 p.m. because you got to be in bed because you are waking up at 4 a.m. the next day, that I will get more done in that time frame. Um, I've really kind of minimized any type of non-essential activities. I don't watch TV. I don't... I make sure my commute to work is as short as possible. So there's ways where I like, you know, figure out how to fit it in. But I've also had to realize that, and this became acute, I became acutely aware of this during injury is that stress, as, as we both know, stress is stress. Mm -hmm. And I have to factor in the stress that I have from my, you know, career as an attorney. And I'm not recovering just because I'm sitting at a desk all day long. I used to think that because I was sitting at a desk all day long, I was doing really well with recovery. Um, yeah, because how much effort does it take to sit in a chair all day, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I've actually realized is I probably do the worst possible thing imaginable is that I train really hard and then I sit really hard or I sit or I stand, you know, but like, and as opposed to like, there's no in between. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I don't think I'm ever going to be as high mileage or train as much as a full-time professional athlete. And I'm just, and I'm just going to have to, that's, that's just how it is because I have to account for the stress of a full-time job. Yeah. And given that, and some of the injury issues you've dealt with over the years, when you are sitting at your desk for eight, yeah. 10, 12 hours a day, whatever it may be, um, do you do anything or make any conscious efforts to get up and move around or do some mobility stuff so that you aren't just curled up by the end of the day um, and then try and unwind yourself before the next morning? <laughs> yeah. So it's funny. My coworkers know that I have um, if anybody needs a mobility tool, I have about 20 in my office, um, foam rollers, vibrating little things like, you know, everything I've got like wobble boards. Um, and so, yes, I drink a lot of water. So I am actually up back and forth to the bathroom is my, is my, I'm up, you know, at least twice an hour. I do. I'm lucky in Apple. We have sit stand desks. So, you know, I'll change that during the day though. I realize standing in one position for for very long is almost as bad as sitting in one position for very long. So I'm trying to move as much as possible and, and definitely, um, you know, I do that. I, so I incorporate that mobility in, in the movement. I try to get out during lunch, um, kind of that lunch time frame and take a lap around the building, just a walk or go up and down. I'm, we're on the fifth floor. So I walk up and down the stairs. Um, that helps as well. Yeah. So you're not totally grounded throughout the course of the day. You have moments where you can get up and move a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So aside from training and working full time, what do you, what do you do with the rest of your time when you're not sleeping just for non, <laughs> non running, non professionally related enjoyment? Enjoyment, man. Okay. So I recently have been making concerted effort to read fiction again. Um, cause it used to be something that I used to read every single night before bed. And, um, I lost that somewhere along the way. And so I recently been getting back into that and have been reading the classics that I've never hit. I'm currently like 10% of the way through Moby Dick right now. 
Um, and then remembering why I never read it in the first place. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, my other hobbies, the few vices that I do have, um, I definitely relate to, um, professional wrestling. So WWE, that is one re- thing that I do watch on TV. And, uh, is that something you grew up on? You don't know, no. Um, I had an ex-boyfriend a long time ago who was a huge fan and I was like, what is this? And then I started watching it with him and I just became, I just became hooked. Um, and he's long gone, but the, the love of wrestling, wrestling has, stuck, has around. stuck around. Yeah. So, um, definitely, definitely that's my, if, if I, if I could go back and do it over again, I would have been a professional wrestler, but I'm definitely not, um, <laughs> mobile and quick enough for that. <laughs> so professional wrestling and fiction. Yes. And I'm a huge football fan. Sadly, my, you know, the Seahawks were not, are now no longer around and the Patriots give me the heebie-jeebies. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, uh, in general, football season is my favorite time. Awesome. Uh, let's touch on, on two more things on the professional athlete side of things. I want to go back to a post that you put on Instagram not that long ago. Um, and it was about not pushing athlete codes or doing giveaways. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you, you asked a couple questions at the end. Um, you know, is it, is being a salesperson just part of the culture or are we selling ourselves short? And that generated quite a bit of response from your followers on, on Instagram. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the business of being a professional athlete who has sponsors that you represent and just, you know, how, how important those sponsors are for allowing you to do the things that you do, but also how challenging it can be as well to juggle all of that. Yeah. Yeah. That was an interesting, that would, that was a post I've been thinking about a very long time because there's no one right way to sponsorship. Um, and it's a very interesting, interesting world that, um, and especially, you know, as, as, as runners, as obstacle racers, there's, it's not very lucrative. Um, so I always wonder, you know, like what really is our role? Um, and I think that for me, I recognize in a lot of the feedback I got was like, um, you, you can obviously say this and you have a right to say that because you have an option. You have a full-time job. Otherwise that supports you and puts food on the table. Um, and so, you know, therefore you don't feel the need to like push these codes or, mm-hmm. or do that. And I go, and I, and I, and I realized, yes, that is a luxury for me, but in another way that stymies a lot of things for me as well. So, you know, when I, I, I came out of that with a lot of insight and that it's going to be different for every single athlete. But a part of me wonders, like as athletes, like how do we know how to value ourselves too? Because there is really no transparency of what people are worth or what, if somebody comes to me with like, this is a contract, this is how much I'm going to give you. It's a very, very hush hush culture in that Mm -hmm. people don't really know what other people are making from sponsors, if anything at all. And I just wish there could be some more transparency and I'm not like in like a union type of thing, because I wonder like if, if a person is willing to push somebody's product for nothing but free gear, then that company is never going to have any incentive to actually ever pay anybody anything because they'll find somebody who will do it for free. Right. And, um, so there's a, there's a lot of that thought going on. But for me, generally, like when I work with sponsors, when I work with companies, my number one thing is, is always, you know, just to make sure they're good people. Do they pass the sniff test? <laughs> and, um, and, and real, and, you know, uh, something that's really coming from a place of honesty and a place of that, like, I love the products. I love the company and the people. Yeah. Which is kind of a rarity. If we're being honest, mm-hmm. I, know a lot of athletes obviously um who have sponsorships with various companies and a lot of them will will take what they can get and just sort of for lack of a better term whore themselves out by yeah. by pushing codes and and doing giveaways not because they necessarily believe in the product but because in their head that justifies the sponsorship or the relationship mm-hmm. and is going to allow them to to kind of keep going so i mean kudos for you for for kind of recognizing what you want to represent and who you want to represent and and work with because i i agree with you i do think that 
this lack of transparency, it, I think it hurts kind of athletes um, overall who, who, as you said, they don't know what they're worth. Someone gets, you know, someone gets out of college, they're new to professional running, they want to sign a contract, and they have no idea whether or not they should sign for just shoes and gear or whether they should push for more than that because no one does talk about it, um, which yeah. is unlike which is unlike a lot of other professional sports where someone signs a contract and it gets announced or someone gets a bonus and we know what it is. Um, but yeah, it would be, I think it'd be beneficial on a number of levels if, if that could eventually change for endurance sports, but that's, yeah. And I think that that's, you know, I I guess that's kind of the role of an agent, but I Mm -hmm. think there are very few people that actually really in this, maybe because there's probably not enough money. So you're like, am I going to hire an agent? You can afford an agent, right? Like who's going to take 15% off of like the shoes that I get, you know, like it just doesn't make any sense. It is is bizarre a world for sure. (laughs) So I'm all for the transparency, you know, and work together as athletes and, and really just, yeah, like, you know, I've, tr- I've turned down deals from people that have been semi lucrative things, but it just, it doesn't feel right to me. Um, and so I think that for any, it, you know, for any athlete that's kind of trust that gut, you know? Yeah. That's great. Last question. And you sort of answered this with your professional wrestling disclosure <laughs> a little while ago, but what is something that most people don't know about you or would be surprised by? Or surprised to learn. <laughs> well, yeah. So professional wrestling for sure. Um, I actually, um, before I was in, at, the main thing that I did when I was growing up is I was actually classically trained in opera and, um, won a lot of singing competitions, uh, in throughout growing up. I was in all these like very prestigious choirs and, and I'm actually huge acapella nerd. So I sang in college. I didn't play sports. I sang in an acapella group and, um, that was kind of my, that was my thing. So a lot of music in my past and I'm still trying to figure out a way how to incorporate that more into that in my life. I think you should just start broadcasting <laughs> to your Instagram stories or start posting uh, videos of you singing in your apartment or something. Uh, that'd be a good place to start. Who knows where it'll go from there? Maybe you'll end up on YouTube or, or, or get a deal, but... <laughs> Yeah, there we go. Just one more thing. One more. Yeah, why not? Um, Amelia, thank you so much for your time. This is a fun conversation. Before we before we split, where can listeners follow you online uh, and learn more about what you're up to? Yeah, so most active, you'll find me on Twitter um, at Amelia Boone. Uh, Instagram is arboone eleven because I was late to the game and Amelia Boone was already taken and. Then I also have a website that's poorly updated, but I do blog ever occasionally, and that is ameliaboonracing.com. Right on. Um, all the best to you at Sean O'Brien, and Thank you. hopefully we'll have you back on here soon.